Kia ora everyone, I'm Andrew Whiteside and in this interview I have the great pleasure of talking with Peter Tatchell, a resolute campaigner for human rights and environmental protection. Originally born in Australia, Tatchell has spent most of his life in the UK. I had intended to talk to Peter about his life and his impact on queer rights, but he took the interview in a different direction and I think that's not a bad thing. So here is Peter Tatchell. Peter Tatchell, wonderful to meet you. I've been uh, fascinated by your life and the, all the, the activism and the things that you've achieved over the years. Uh, I don't want to cover your whole career because it is massive, but I'd love to get a sense of the, of the man underneath the public image. Well, I'd like to start by saying how pleased I am to be back in New Zealand. Um, and uh, the last time I was here was in 1971. Goodness me. 48 years ago and I stayed at the Wellington YMCA. And for those who don't know, YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association. I have to say that at the YMCA where I stayed there, there were a lot of very horny young men, but not much Christian association. I can believe it. And you had a Christian background. Absolutely. But you're an atheist. I am. What led to that conversion, so to speak? Just a rational, you know, scientific-based understanding of the world and a sense that you know religion all religions are a form of superstition um, I respect people who have religious values but I don't think that's a useful way to understand the world I think science and logic rationality evidence is the way to go and often those Christian values don't match Christian behaviors absolutely you know all the great religions have at the core of them love and compassion but historically, uh, all the major religions have been misogynistic, homophobic, and many other bad things. Now, I was talking to uh, Andy Reynolds, who wrote the book, um, The Children of Harvey Milk, and that's partly why you're here, because that, that book is being launched in New Zealand this week. Uh, and he was saying that you seem to have this overarching sense of fairness and that equality is important to you. Where did that come from? Well, I'd like to just correct you there. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we are about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in New York in 1969. Um, the real significance of that event was not the riot itself, important though fighting back against police harassment was, it was more important what it led to, namely the formation of the Gay Liberation Front which spread from New York all across the United States and the Western world. And in that era, which I was a part of, the word equality never passed our lips. We were not interested in equality within the status quo. We wanted social transformation. We had a critique of society as it was, so therefore we did not want parity within it. We want to change society not only for the benefit of LGBTIQ plus people, but also for the benefit of straight and cisgender people as well. Uh, we had a vision of a new democracy, a new sexual democracy, a new fairer society, which would challenge all forms of prejudice. And so therefore we were very much allied to parallel struggles for women's liberation, black liberation, workers' liberation, and so on. We saw this solidarity between social movements as a key to uplifting society for the betterment of everyone. Whereas, of course, today, I think the horizons have been much lowered to the rather limited uh, vision of mere equality 
within what exists. And of course, what exists has been devised by and for the heterosexual majority, the cisgender majority. And I think that is a system or a society which is deeply flawed in many ways. Um, you can look at poverty or racism. Um, these are things that affect many people within the LGBTIQ plus community. So merely resolving issues of sexual orientation and gender identity will not necessarily mean a liberation for all members of our community. So that includes economic transformation then? Absolutely. So, so what needs to change in your mind? Well, I think we need to move to a society based on cooperation, based on people's needs rather than the drive for profit. I think we need to um, recognise that everybody needs a fair start in life and that currently all around the world we see huge disparities of wealth and power um, between people who have and those who have not. For example, in Britain today, um, the richest 1,000 individuals have a combined personal wealth of over £750 billion, which is more than the poorest, much more than the poorest 40% of the population. You know, that kind of extreme uh, disparity is just not right. And you know, when you have a million people in Britain today relying on food banks to survive, that is totally unconscionable. I guess at the centre of that is self-interest versus thinking about other people. Absolutely. You know, we are not just individuals, we are part of a wider society and community. And our strength lies in working together, in supporting each other. You know, I'm a big, you know, green activist as well. And, you know, we can't solve climate destruction or pollution or uh, the resource depletion as individuals. That requires a collective effort. Do you think it's possible given human nature? I do. You know, I am an eternal optimist and an idealist. I believe better is possible. My, my motto, you might have seen on my website, is don't accept the world as it is, dream of what the world could be, and then help make it happen. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think most people would look and think, well, here is a man who has been pushing for um, the, the rights for queer people, but it's actually wrapped up in something much more complex and wider ranging than that. Yeah, I've always situated the battle for LGBTIQ plus liberation within the context of wider human liberation. And I've always argued that although it may sometimes be right and necessary to fight our own exclusive LGBTIQ plus battles, most often we're going to be more successful if we insert those battles within the context of the wider, broader human rights struggle. So, for example, uh, right now there's a big battle going on in Britain to get uh, relationship and sex education in schools to be inclusive of LGBTIQ plus issues. Very important, very valuable. But in contrast to most other LGBTIQ plus activists, I'm arguing, yes, we need that, but we need better relationship and sex education for all young kids, That's not just the LGBTIQ ones. And if we can build alliances with, if you like, straight pupils and parents for education about these issues which enhances young people's health and welfare, we're going to be much stronger and much more effective. 
And isn't that the way that um, successful campaigns around the world where um, LGBT issues have been successfully uh, canvassed and, and laws changed, isn't that the case where these alliances have occurred? In many cases, yes. And I'll give you a good example. In Uganda, the Ugandan LGBTIQ plus movement is part of a wider constitutional convention which includes women's rights organisations, trade unionists, political oppositionists, green activists, and so on. And they all support each other. So when the LGBTIQ plus community is under attack, all those other organisations rally to support them, and vice versa. When women's rights are being threatened or the rights of tribal and ethnic minorities are under attack, the LGBTIQ plus movement goes and rallies to support them. And that unity and solidarity makes everybody collectively stronger and more effective. So with the current uh, situation around the world, large corporations, um, the geopolitical situation, the power structures in different countries, religion, all of those things, how do you think that change, if it happens the way you'd like to see it happen, how do we do that, even, even at a personal level? How, how do you start that? Well, of course, we can all make individual personal choices and changes. So to not buy products from big corporations that exploit and degrade the environment or which oppress people in other countries or which collude with um, restrictions on labour rights and, 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 and treat their workers badly. We can make those choices as, as consumers. Uh, we can also choose to not be wasteful in terms of what we, what we use in, in terms of resources, you know, to reduce our carbon footprint. Those are easy, fairly easy things we can all do. But as I said earlier, it isn't going to work unless we're banding together with many others into a collective movement to change the economic, political and cultural system that sustains the status quo. And that, for that we need, a, we, need a, we need a social movement, we need a political movement. And that, of course, is the big challenge. And I'm constantly frustrated because although I'm... In the Green Party, I, I broadly support Jeremy Corbyn and Labour, but I find many of their methods and tactics and so on so frustrating. You know, I'm well to the left of Jeremy Corbyn, but I have a popularity among the general public far greater than he or, or most people in the Labour Party because I stick to my principles. You know, I call out, you know, tyranny in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, where left-wing regimes have gone bad, where they overthrew uh, dictatorial, oppressive regimes, unjust regimes, but instead of proceeding in the right direction, they have adopted similar methods and tyrannies. Um, and I think the public respect that. The public want consistency. And when you have the leader of the Labour Party refusing to do anything serious to speak out against the Assad regime in Syria, Putin's regime in Russia, the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and the Ortega dictatorship in Nicaragua, the public see through that. They see an unprincipled and inconsistent political leadership, and therefore Jeremy Corbyn has sadly lost a lot of public support. But isn't that the crisis in, in Western politics now, though, that expediency is the, the key to staying in power? Well, absolutely, and um, so often we find that even left-wing and progressive parties put party interest before the interests of the people. So, for example, in Britain, Labour refuses to collaborate with the Greens, the SNP, Plaid Cymru, and other opposition parties like the Liberal Democrats 
to oust the Tories. Yet we know from experience where this collaboration has tried, when, they, when those parties work together, the Tories are history. Like in the May uh, local elections in 2018 in the London Borough of Richmond, the Greens and Liberal Democrats worked together. Uh, Labour refused, but the Greens and Lib Dems worked together and they wiped the board and got the Tories ousted from that local municipality. So an anti-Tory alliance can work and it just, I tear my hair, hair out in desperation that Labour won't do it because they're so sectarian, so tribalist. And that's not what politics should be about. It should be about doing what is right for the people and doing what is right to actually change things for better. But it does come back to um, the way humans are built, the way we operate, that we, we can't think logically all the time. We can't always be the perfect... We can't always approach every issue perfectly, can we? Our own well, self-interest always... You, you like, you, cause you, you don't have this philosophy, I know, but, but not everybody can get beyond their own self-interest or their own fears or their own situation. To, to make a change. So that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? Human self-interest at some point will probably trip it up. Yeah, but it is possible. So, for example... Oh, I agree. During the Second World War, Labour and the Conservatives in Britain had an electoral truce. And then a combination of Liberals, Independents and Socialists and even Communists said, no, no, we're not going to have an electoral truce with Winston Churchill's government while poor people are suffering. We're going to fight this system. And they set up a, what was called the Commonwealth Party holding the wealth in common. It was the most radical left-wing program that any party in Britain has ever put forward. And because they articulated in a common sense way and appealed to people's better nature and did so which transcended party boundaries and loyalties, they swept the board. They won nearly every by-election they fought. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a great model of how radical left-wing progressive politics can succeed. It was at a time of national crisis, though, so I wonder if, if some of the, the changes that you would like to see in society, we need a crisis, and I mean a huge crisis, an existential crisis, in order to make that change happen. Well, you're probably right, but we do have that crisis. <laughs> we have a two... We, Several crises. We, we have, we have, we, right now we have the Brexit crisis in Britain, and globally we have the two great crises, the disparity between the global south and the global north, um, where, you know, 20% of the world's people living in rich countries consume 80% of the world's resources. And then we have the parallel crisis of uh, resource depletion. You know, we live on a finite planet. You know, we, we, we can't sustain human civilization using up resources at this rate. And then, of course, there is the really major, major threat of climate destruction. Uh, and we are very close to a tipping point uh, where if we don't take action, global action soon, to reduce carbon emissions, we are going to see um, you know, the further massive melting of the uh, ice caps uh, and at the North and South Poles, uh, which is going to raise sea levels, which is going to flood low-lying regions all across the world, including parts of Britain um, and, of course, lots of Pacific islands. Um, and on top of that, it's going to create you know, hundreds of millions of climate refugees. Um, when the big delta regions in India, uh, Vietnam and so on are all flooded, millions and millions of people are going to have to flee. They're going to lose their homes, their jobs, food production is going to plummet. Um, it, it's a very, very scary scenario. And sadly, not enough people have woken up 
to the crisis we face. And I think it is a crisis that requires global action, that national governments have to get out of their box of my nation first and think globally. And this may be an opportunity for some really genuine worldwide collaboration where people's interests, you know, the interests of the common humanity, overrides national interests and class interests. Because at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, you can be as rich as you want, but it's going to give you limited protection against the horrific potential circumstances that will flow from climate destruction. But you remain hopeful that we'll get it, we'll do it. I do, I do. I, I, I believe in the, the will and possibility that people will see the crisis coming in sufficient time, although right now it doesn't look so good, but I think in the end people will see and we will come together and we will overcome it. But it could be at considerable great um, expense to millions of people before we finally get our act together. Well, I thought today we were going to be talking about um, your past and uh, some queer issues, but as you've rightly pointed out, we don't live in a vacuum. We're actually part of a, a much bigger system. So thank you so much for that conversation. It was wonderful to meet you. Thank you. And can I say that everybody's interested, please go to my website, uh, petertatchell.net, and uh, you'll find a huge library of um, uh, a history of my various campaigns and current ones as well. Um, and if you want to, you can click on the Join Us button and you can subscribe for free to our weekly newsletter. But we'd love to have more New Zealanders involved and uh, you know, also, of course, becoming part of our small human rights community. Peter Tatchell, thank you so much. Thank you.